0: Open your bibles to judges chapter one we'll be looking at the last portion of the first chapter of judges this morning together um page five as always there's a, an outline a two-point outline this morning and then three reflection questions uh there on page five for you to to use make use of that as i always say if it helps you stay extra attentive or more engaged um that's that's what wor- really one of the primary things we're trying to do right now is we're trying to really um, invest and imaginatively immerse ourselves in what God is revealing to us in His Word. Uh, the Bible says it's, it's not an ordinary document. It's, it's alive. It's active. And so we want to participate with this, uh, not just as a book or an academic resource, but the living Word of God. So on that note, I'm asking you to stand as I read for us the last portion of Judges chapter 1. We'll be picking up in verse 22, and I'll read through the end of the chapter. This is God's word. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. Verse 27, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bashin and its villages or Ta'anach and its villages or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages or the inhabitants of Eblim and its villages or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Neholol, so the Canaanites lived among them but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko, or the inhabitants of Sidon, or Ahlab, or Aksib, or Helba, or of Afik, or Rehab. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, so they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Bethanoth became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Jerez and Eishelon and Shalabim, but the, but the hand of the house of Joseph was heavy on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim from Salah, and upward. Y'all can have a seat. I invite you to pray with me. Father, before we study your word together, it's really wise that we would ask you to open our ears uh, because we know, because you said it all the time throughout the gospels, that we we could be hearing but, but not really embracing. And, and so you ended most of your short stories, most of your parables with this with this exhortation, he who has ears, let him hear. So we are asking you to, to compel us, joyfully compel us, to hear, to embrace what you're saying to us. Um, and that we would experience your word for what Jesus says it is. It's, it's what we live on. We don't live by bread alone, but most primarily we, we live on every word that comes to us from God So help us to receive what you're showing us here in Judges 1 as the very Word of God. And we ask that it would transform us and cause us to to more deeply delight in the fact that we desperately rely on you and not on ourselves. And we ask this in your name. Amen. So we're all familiar with the concept of uh, house rules, you know, one of the most... uh, cliche house rules is no no shoes no shirt no service or if you're in the Caribbean no shoes no shirt no problem Um, at my house here's an example Uh, shut the cabinet doors it's it's fine if you need to get a cup or a bowl if you open the cabinet door that's reasonable but don't leave the door open just just shut it that's a simple rule right but it's not always followed uh, here's one, don't put empty containers back in the fridge. I know y'all are Presbyterian, but you're allowed to say amen to that one because I know we've all gone to the fridge and we've grabbed the milk carton and it's empty. It, your roommates put trash in the fridge. That's what just happened. They put trash in the fridge. So I don't think it's, it's, it's too strenuous or, or taxing to say, it's a rule, it's a house rule. If, if, the, if the milk is down to just like a fraction of a drop just put it in the trash or in the recycle, right? Don't put it back in the fridge. Here's another rule. If you turned it on, here's a novel idea, turn it off, right? Light go on, right? You went to your room, you pick, turn off the light, right? I know I sound like a grouchy old dad, but I don't want to walk around the house, just turn off light switches for all my roommates. Uh, or, or maybe a more important one, if you turn the oven on, right? I hope you, it's great, you're cooking, that's good, turn it off, Right? We don't want to burn the house down, turn off the oven. Uh, maybe, maybe the one that happens the most, the rule that I'm most sort of uptight about is if it's yours, put it away. Uh, your, your shoes, that's a tripping hazard. Don't, don't leave your shoes just randomly laying around the house. It, you know, We do laundry on the kitchen table. Um, uh, I won't name names, but some of my roommates, it shocks me every week. They're like, I have no idea whose clothes these are. And we're like, well, there's somebody's. Um, so if they're yours, you know, identify them as yours and it's just real simple. Go put them in the drawer, put them in the closet. It's not hard. Here's one. If you don't know how to operate it, leave it alone. If you don't know how, how to function this, uh, work this thing, operate this thing, if you don't know how it functions, leave it alone. Should, should Michael Scott drive the forklift in the warehouse? (laughs) He he says, only on the rarest of occasions will I drive And and Daryl says, no, Never. Never, ever should you drive the forklift, right? Uh, for, for me, my wife would say, uh, Tyler, just leave the decorative kitchen towels alone. You don't know how to operate them. They're not to like clean up messes on the counter or to stop, you know, bleeding when, when children come in from the yard, you know, with injuries. It, they're decorative. They're decorative. You don't know how to use them, so just leave them alone. So the story of scripture is all about God's desire to establish his house with us. That's what it says in scripture. God wants to make his abode with us. This is his big, deep heart's desire. He treasures you. And he wants you to be with him. He wants to be Emmanuel, God with you. And so he wants to establish his abode with you. And here's the thing about abodes, houses. They have rules. It's, it's, it's ubiquitous. It's, it's always true. There are house Rules. And so that's how the first chapter of Judges ends. It ends with this emphasis on God's zeal for his house. And specifically, it tells us about God's most serious, most passionate house rules, the rules that he is most intense about. So the first point is Bethel, because Bethel means house of God. Beth means house, El. Means God. And so the author of Judges gives us this vignette about the house of God, about Bethel. So in verse 22, it says, The house of Joseph went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. Now, the author could just simply move along in quick succession, like we see them doing in verse 27 and following. It could say, The house of Joseph conquered Bethel, and then we move on to the next tribe, and when we talk about you know, where they worked and where they had their battles and what they conquered. But the author of Judges says, we need to sort of camp out here for a minute. I want to give you a little vignette about this location in particular. Now, why is that? Because Bethel is a very robust, very historically rich symbolic location. Again, it means house of God, and it represents God's zeal to establish his house with us to make his abode with us. Bethel is where uh, the patriarch Jacob had his staircase vision. Remember this? When, when Jacob was on the run from his brother Esau, I don't know if any of y'all have been in the situation where a family member has threatened to kill you, but it's it's wise to you know, flee the premises when that happens. And so that's what Jacob's doing. He runs away. He's on his way to his relative Laban's house. And on the way, he stops at this place, Bethel. And God gives him a vision Of of this staircase from heaven to earth. And these angels are coming down the staircase and, and ascending the staircase. And God is saying, I want to establish an irrevocable relationship with you. Even you, Jacob, whose name means deceiver, right? Trickster, sinner. I want to seek and save sinners and establish a marital, exclusive relationship with them. And that's the big theme all throughout Scripture. This is at the heart of the, of the biblical story. This is the gospel. And so God gives this very profound vision to Jacob at Bethel. It's kind of like the location of a, a marriage proposal. A lot of you in the room are, are married or are, are perhaps engaged. And there's this like one spot, it's a special spot for, for you and your spouse. And this is where the question was asked, right? Will you marry me? Uh, for me, it's, it's not really the, the proposal spot, but my, I met my wife at, at Crooked Creek Ranch out in Fraser Valley, Colorado, uh, and this is where I really fell in love with my wife. This is where I first got to know her and, and experienced like, okay, who is this person? And, and um, a lot of the time, so, some of our longest, most substantive conversations, they took place in the, the, the dormitories. My wife and I were on staff out at this ranch in Colorado, and there was a guy's dorm, and a girl's dorm, okay? And so we weren't allowed to go in each other's you know, specific dorms. Like guys couldn't go in the girl's dorm. So what we'd do is after a, you know, a day's work or whatever after dinner, we'd go and we'd just sit in the hallway outside, outside the dorm. So in 2018, I remember I went back to visit, and I was with a buddy, and we were touring around the ranch, and we walked into this dormitory, and at one point I handed my phone to my friend, and I said, here, take a picture of me right here. And it's in this just regular, boring hallway. And he said seriously? You, you just want me to take a picture of you sitting on the ground in this hallway? And I said, yes. And he says, this is not that impressive. This, this doesn't seem like a, 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 you know, a memorable place. And I said, no, that's where you're wrong. Because this is where I really first got to know my wife, my, my beloved. This is a very special place. And so that's what God's saying about Bethel. He's saying, this is a very special place. This is where I proposed to you. This is where I I made you more aware of my desire to integrate our families, right? To to establish my home with you. And so the author of Judges isn't just sort of soaking up that story, but he's he's also strengthening the significance of of the story of Bethel. And he does that specifically by offering this account, the account of the tribe of Joseph uh, conquering Bethel, he offers this vignette to us in the motif of the Jericho story. So, so especially for this generation, the, these people in Judges chapter one, the stories of the book of Joshua would have been very sort of vibrant and memorable. I mean, they're coming right out of that history. And the most memorable of the stories in the book of Joshua is the story of Jericho. And the story of Jericho, what you've got to understand, hear me on this, what you've got to understand is it's it's not your normal battle story. It's not a normal or ordinary story of conquest. You know, the way most armies would would come upon a city and besiege it and conquer it. This is a very different narrative. The story of Jericho is all about God's very exclusive monogamous desire to have a marital relationship with his people. And it includes not just the Israelites as they are, but it includes anybody who converts to belief in Yahweh, the only true and living God. So people from every tribe, tongue and nation are going to be enveloped and included in this family. And that's what the story of Jericho is all about. You can go back and read it, the story of Jericho. It says that essentially God commands Israel to engage not so much in battle as we know it, but in a week long worship service. That's what God tells the people to do in the story of Jericho. They march around Jericho 13 times over the course of a week, seven days. Here's what it says. The priests, not not the commanders, not the generals, but the priests will lead God's people with seven trumpets before the Ark of God, which represents God with us. And on the seventh day, the priests will will blow the trumpets after they march around the city seven times, and that's how the walls of Jericho will, will crumble to the ground. That's how we will conquer this city. And we see right there in the thick of Jericho, there's this character Rahab. Right? She's, she's not a member of ethnic Israel, but God says, let's adopt her. Let's, let's integrate her and her family into this relationship that God wants to have with his people because she's very much on board with the, the fact that this God, Yahweh, he's the only true and living God. right? The, the God of the Canaanites is not the real God. This, this Yahweh God, he's the real God. So she she converts and she enters into this exclusive monogamous relationship with all the other Israelites because God is their husband. And so this is an extremely memorable moment, the story of Jericho for for God and his people. So the author of Judges is telling this story, the story of Bethel in that same motif. And you can see the similarities. If you're familiar with the Jericho story, we see number one, they send a surveillance team. They send send spies. And then the spies make contact with a citizen of the city. And then they request help. assistance from that citizen. And finally, fourth, they offer a reward to that citizen. And so the author is saying, this is is how God is is crafting the story for Bethel. it's, It's a literary technique to get the reader to really buy in and invest in this idea that God wants to establish his home with us. And he will do his work of establishing that home in a very extraordinary, unique to God sort of way, where worship not our own efforts, not our ability to win wars, but, but worshiping the, the only true and living God. That's at the heart of the story. So he's conjuring up those memories, but at the same time, he's showing us that something is significantly wrong. Some, something's not right here. And you're going to see that throughout the book of Judges. In fact, increasingly, you're not just going to get the sense that something's not right. There are going to be scenes in the book of Judges where you're not going to be able to look at it head on because it's too grotesque. It's it's too it's too hard to imagine it. it. Something is clearly not right in the book of Judges, and so in the story of Jericho, Rahab converts to to belief in Yahweh. She fully integrates into the house of God. But in this story, this man from Luz, he's let go, and he just runs off to rebuild the city of Luz someplace else. And this may seem sort of jarring or offensive to you, but God says, that is a stench to me. The fact that the city of Luz is allowed to just relocate. God's, God's word for this in scripture is, that's an abomination. It's abominable to me. And if you go back and you read the Torah, specifically the book of Deuteronomy, it says why it's an abomination to God. It says, uh, God says to his people, when you enter the land, you, you should not, Uh, Learn the ways of the Canaanites. That's why we're driving them out completely That's why we're not just tolerating them and integrating with them because their ways are poisonous Their ways are going to be cancer to your community So what does God mean when he says the ways of the Canaanites are wicked? Well, he gives some specific examples He says for example, I don't want you to learn their abominable practices such as burning their children as offerings to the gods. That's what they did. The Canaanites thought we will, be, we will be favored in the sight of the gods and we will be more prosperous if we simply kill our children, offer them, murder them. And that's how we will win the favor of the gods. And, and God says, listen, I am zealously opposed to that. I am violently opposed to that kind of injustice and dehumanization. And so you're not going to play patty cakes with these these neighbors in Canaan. They can convert or you drive them out. We're not going to have a a tolerance uh, way of interacting with them. That's not how this is going to work. I don't know if some of you are familiar with the story of Adam Brown. Adam Brown was a Navy SEAL and he, he ended up marrying this lady named Kelly. And uh, in, in Adam Brown's story, before he became a Navy SEAL, uh, he was, a very, um, he was a, a very intense drug addict. He had a very serious drug problem. And there's this really dramatic scene in, in the book, in the story of Adam Brown, where uh, Kelly sits him down. His, his wife-to-be sits him down, and she says, babe, I love you. I want to integrate our families. I want to establish a home with you. I want to be um, your wife, right? Exclusively, I want to be your wife. Totally committed. But you're not allowed to keep your drug friends around because time and time again, you've relapsed and you've, and you've proven that you can't handle it. They are a bad influence on you. And this craving in you is so intense that you will go after it. So, so you have to choose. It's either me without any of your, your drug friends around, like even nearby, or you choose them, which would be a very destructive, unhealthy path for you. And that might seem intense. That might seem harsh. That might seem narrow-minded to you. But God would say, that's good. That's healthy. Because God's zeal for his house, just like Kelly's zeal for her marriage to Adam, it's, it's, it's a zeal that cannot condone or endorse these, these other unhealthy influences. And so that's what God's saying. My zeal for my house will not allow for Luz to be, to be a city nearby that, that y'all don't deal with. And we see throughout the rest of this chapter, this is the big problem, that the Israelites failed to drive out the inhabitants of the land. And God's zeal for his house is at odds with this. God's zeal is, is an all-consuming zeal. It insists on monogamy relationship with God is very exclusive. It's monogamous. And these other, these other Canaanite tribes and, and peoples who have these other gods, God won't tolerate it. No mistresses are allowed in the marriage with God. So in verses 22 through 36, as we end the first chapter of Judges, we see the author of Judges ends by mentioning seven tribes. He, he concludes the first chapter by saying, here are seven tribes who failed to drive out the injustice and the dehumanization that is happening in the land of Canaan. Which begs the question, why seven? Why, why seven tribes? I mean, aren't there 12 tribes? Are we, are, we to, um, are we to take from this that the other five tribes succeeded perfectly and, and just these seven failed? Well, no, seven all throughout scripture is, is used as a, as a symbol of completeness. And so, at the risk of sounding harsh or offending you, God's saying, the the Israelites failed completely. They they failed completely. Uh, We have a totally depraved situation here. There's a big, big problem. The author is underscoring our biggest or deepest problem. And I know it sounds cliche to say this at church, but our biggest problem is not, oh, I need more money. Or, man, there's that person I work with and they're really annoying. Or, Um, I have this affliction, this physical issue that I'm dealing with, and it's just, it's such a, it's such a burden. Those can be problems, but our biggest problem, God says, is sin. I think one of the stories in the Gospels that really puts the accent and the emphasis on this is in Mark chapter two, where this guy who was paralyzed, which I think we'd all agree is a big problem, he is brought to Jesus. And and he's brought by his friends. He can't walk, so his friends bring him to Jesus, and they put this man right in front of Jesus. And Jesus, straight away, identifies this man's big problem. And as the reader of of this story, you're thinking, yes, of course, this man's big problem is that he's paralyzed. (laughs) That's obviously his biggest issue. And Jesus says, no, that's not actually his biggest issue. Jesus says, I'm I'm not sure if this will offend you or not, but the fact is his his biggest problem is that he's a sinner, which sounds like such a harsh, mean thing to say to someone who has suffered like this man, someone who has been paralyzed maybe his entire life. And Jesus says, first and foremost, I am here to forgive your sins. That's what Jesus says is the big issue that needs to get dealt with. And and there are some sort of uptight church leaders in the crowd, and they say, who are you, Jesus? Jesus. To put yourself up on a pedestal with God and, and pretend like you have the authority to forgive sins and Jesus says, oh, I am God. I'm God with you and I'm here to, to save sinners and forgive them and just so you know I have the authority to forgive sins, I'll, I'll throw in a cure for this man's paralyzation just for free, right? But the emphasis is not on the cure of his, his paralyzed affliction. That is offered as a proof of his bigger, his bigger mission as proof that he has the authority to forgive sins. What is sin? Sin, according to the book of Judges, is us wanting to do what's right in our own eyes. Think about that for a second. That doesn't really seem like a big deal. It doesn't seem sinful, right? Just me doing what I feel like doing. doesn't seem bad or evil. Me doing what, what makes sense to me, me doing what feels natural and what feels right to me. And God says, well, believe it or not, that's actually the big issue. You can either fundamentally trust in yourself and lean on your own understanding and do what's right in your eyes, which may not feel like a big deal to you, or you can live by faith in God, which is you don't trust in yourself and you don't lean on your, on your own understanding. And you follow Jesus, even when it doesn't make sense, even when following Jesus is confounding, even when it comes with a lot of risks. Jesus says, that's, that's the issue. Sin is you doing what you feel like. Faith, following God is you trusting in me even when it doesn't make sense. So we see that all over the final verses of Judges 1. Um, it feels right to Manasseh. It feels right to them not to drive out the people in the land of Canaan. It just, it just feels right to them. It actually feels more pragmatically helpful, m- more, more utilitarianly sensible to just keep the people of Canaan around as forced laborers. They they say, this doesn't make sense to us, that you want us to drive out all these perfectly good forced laborers. I mean, economically, we we would be benefited if we just subjected them to forced labor as opposed to do what you say, God, which is drive them out. It seemed right to Ephraim. It seemed enlightened and progressive to integrate with the Canaanites. You know, to not integrate with the Canaanites, that seems narrow-minded, that seems bigoted and offensive. And, and we don't want to offend people. We're, we're definitely afraid of saying something that might, that might be offensive, that might make people perceive us in a, in a negative light. In verse 34, it says the, the Danites, they just don't feel safe going to war against the Amorites. God forbid he would command us to do something that doesn't feel safe. More and more I see this as as the big obstacle for us as followers of Jesus. People are called to do something that is kind of risky, and they say, I just can't do that. And I ask, why? And they say, I I just don't feel safe. And society has sort of come alongside of all of us and said, now that's the main thing, is that you feel safe. Never ever do anything if if it causes you to feel unsettled or, or at risk or unsafe. And... How would God respond to all of, all of that sentiment? Well, honestly, if you read throughout Scripture, uh, God is not heavy-handed. He really isn't. He truly isn't. Most emphatically, most systematically, God says, you need to understand that I am long-suffering, and I am patient, and I am merciful, and in fact, in the fullness of time, I myself will take on flesh, and I will not just dwell with you as God, but I will dwell with you as a man. And I will be tempted in every way that you've experienced temptation. I get it. Ultimately, God would press into all of these excuses and he would say, y'all, I get it. I'm not aloof. I'm not detached. I've lived what you're living. I have felt what you're feeling. I get it. I actually, believe it or not, I follow your thought process, but it's flawed. It's flawed. God would say, I get that this is tough. Not just for you. I get it. It was tough for me too, but it has to be done. We've got to drive out these these people who are propagating this cancer, this poison. And you see here at the end of Judges, the Israelites are unwilling to do it. It Just doesn't make sense to them. It's too hard for them. I just finished listening to um, Bono's autobiography from, from the Irish rock band U2, Bono. There's this scene in the autobiography where Bono and Ali, they have these other friends. Do you remember the band In Excess, the Australian rock group? So that guy's name is Michael and his wife's name is Paula. They're good friends. As you would expect, rock stars have rock star friends. And so they're hanging out like on their private island or something. And um, Paula and Michael from this other rock band, they they announce to Bono and Ali, hey, we're pregnant. And, and they're happy for them and everything. And they said, and we wanted y'all to be the godparents to our to our daughter, our firstborn daughter. And you, you'd think that Bono and Allie would jump at the opportunity to be the godparents for Michael and Paula. Uh, but they hesitated and they wrestled because Michael and Paula were in a very unhealthy place. They, they were on a very destructive path of indulging in a lot of... Uh, Addictive, addictive substances. They were, they were heavy into drugs. And so Bono says this in his autobiography. He said, at the end of the day, Allie and I had to go to Michael and Paula and say, we will not be your daughter's godparents. And it was hard for us to come to this place, but really we think y'all are on a very self-destructive path. And to become your daughter's godparents, it feels to us like it would be sending a message that we endorse the path that you're on. And we didn't arrive at this conclusion lightly, but but ultimately this comes from a place of really loving you. We don't want a shallow relationship with, with you. We really want to be good friends to you. And we feel like this is an opportunity to get your attention and to really tell you some truth that is perhaps hard to hear. He goes on to say, you know, we had hoped that our position would make them think twice about the path that they were on. But sadly, it only made them think twice about us as their friends and the relationship was over because they were willing to draw this line. And God would say in Proverbs 27, this is one of the real premier pictures of true love. Better is open rebuke than someone who just tells you what you want to hear because they don't want to offend you. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And ultimately God says, I'm your best friend. God says, I am absolutely the one who loves you the most. And I'm not going to hesitate to faithfully wound you. Zeal for my house, my love for you, my desire to envelop you and integrate you into my house. It won't allow me to lie to you and endorse things in your life that are actually unhealthy. It won't. So so Jesus Jesus does this all throughout his teaching, right? He looks at a, a materialistic world just like our world. And he says, materialism is killing you. He says it, right? His disciples think the, the more wealthy you are, the more blessed by God you are. And, God, and Jesus says, no, if you have a lot of money, you're making your life harder. And that is really hard for people 2,000 years ago and people in 2023 to swallow. And, and we just mindlessly, like the Israelites in the land of Canaan, we mindlessly adopt the paradigm that if I have a lot of money and I'm materially prosperous, then God is blessing me. And over and over again, the Bible says that, is cancer. Your consumeristic, materialistic mindset, that is a huge problem. And you just sort of drink the Kool-Aid without thinking about it. And Jesus says, we have to confront that. In this sacrament, we're going to come to the sacrament in a moment. And, and what we're getting in this sacrament is God's faithful wounding of us. First and foremost, what God is doing in this sacrament is he's saying, you are not a good person. You're you're not a person who who has this intrinsic ability to impress God and earn your way to heaven. If if you could earn your way to heaven, be really clear about this, if you could perform your way to heaven, because you're a basically decent person, the Son of God would not have laid down his life to atone for your wickedness. This is a deeply offensive meal. First and foremost, this meal, it it sort of registers with us as as a, loving but kind of bitter reminder that this is what it, this is what it cost for God to, to pay for your sins so that you could be in his house. This is the zeal of the Lord. Jesus, in the Gospel of Mark chapter 7, he confronts the church. He says, y'all get together at synagogue and in the temple, and you praise me with your lips. You honor me with your lips. But you need to examine yourself because a lot of you, your hearts are far from me. You emphasize what's right in your own eyes. You tend to celebrate your own traditions and your own opinions over and above what I emphasize and commend in my word. And he doesn't say that because he's mean and he's trying to penalize you. He's saying that because he loves you. And so when you come to this table, you've got to examine yourself and you have to ask yourself, am I just honoring God with my lips? Right? Am I just kind of going through the relational motions with God? Or do I really want to, to listen to and absorb what God says and then live it out in dependence on Christ, not in self-dependence, as the joy set before me? We see in the, the first chapter of Judges, um, just like the people of, of the days of the Judges, we integrate with the foolishness of the world. Thoughtlessly, just because it feels right. And Jesus would say, ultimately, there are things in your life that you're going to have to drive out. We see this in the Gospel of John chapter 2. Again, a scene where Jesus comes into a church community, right? A religious community. And and the community in John chapter 2 would have thought, you know, we are thriving. We are blessed by God. We are financially thriving. Uh, There's a lot happening here. It's busy. It feels significant. God is really at work. And Jesus comes into that very bustling materialistic context and he starts flipping over tables and driving people out not because he's mean but because zeal for his house is all-consuming for him and that's the real emphasis of what you need to take away from this meal I hope you feel some measure of conviction because that's part of the meal but ultimately you're not allowed to stay in this place of feeling bad about your sin You need to feel the weight of making decisions that are at odds with God's will. But ultimately, God says, you can't live there. You can't wallow in guilt. You have to embrace the fact that zeal for his house actually did consume Jesus so that you wouldn't be consumed. Zeal for the house of God is what you're partaking of in this meal. Literally, Jesus was consumed He was was the bearer of God's infinite wrath against wickedness because he has that level of love for you and this passion to incorporate you into the house of God. So if you're tracking with that, even even a mustard seed's worth, even just a little bit, you're thinking, that's what I'm hungry for. I, I need more of that. I need more of Jesus and his faithful wounding in my life, and I need more of his loving shepherding leading me not in the drudgery of following God, but in the joy set before him. And he needs to to cultivate that in me. I'm hungry for that. If that's you, you need to come and partake of this meal. If that's not you, we would invite you to just stay where you're seated and continue to wrestle, continue to examine whether or not you really want what Jesus is offering in your life. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you for being a faithful Friend. Really, we cannot wrap our minds around how, how faithful of a friend you are. It is actually staggering to me that you said to your disciples that, that we aren't just your followers, though we are your followers. But you said, I, I actually do see you as my friends. I love you so much. You love us uh, as your best friend, as your soulmate, as, as your wife. That's what we are, the church. We are the body and bride. Of Jesus and so we ask that you would compel us uh, as the joy set before us to come to this very marital exclusive monogamous meal where we depend not on ourselves and not on any other world system or other gods but we we depend on Jesus we come to Christ and Christ alone as the the only way that we enter into the cherished relationship that God that you God desire to have with us We ask that you would give us a hunger and an appetite for that that relationship as we come to this meal now. Amen.